Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So in this episode, we want to dig into a topic that we touched upon briefly in our last episode with our guest, Ashley Whitmore. This is the concept which is known as the imposter syndrome. That's right. The imposter syndrome comes up a lot in conversations about academia, but it also resonates with parents as well. Yeah, this is another one of those issues that was completely familiar to me, but it wasn't until grad school that I actually heard the term that it really clicked. Judith, is this a new concept or has it been around for a while? So this is actually not an entirely new concept. Um, There's been psychological research about it since the 1970s. Uh, In 1978, to be precise, uh, psychologists Suzanne Imes and Pauline Rose Clance, both with PhDs, did some research in this field. And they suggested that the imposter phenomenon occurs uh, among high achievers who are unable to internalize and accept their successes. So they often attribute their uh, accomplishments to luck rather than to ability and fear that others will eventually unmask them as a fraud. And I, this just, all of this just sounds like pretty much everything that everybody uh, experienced that we went to grad, grad school with. Um, ultimately, they describe it as, and this is a quote, an internal experience of intellectual phoniness. So, <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so just like kind of summarizing that um, and looking over the key terms here, I think uh, really resonates with what a lot of us are going through, especially in grad school. Um, and so I'd love to, you know, talk about that a little bit more today. Yeah, there's there's a lot there that I experienced when I was in grad school and before as well. Um, I don't know. Does this how do you feel about that, Erin? Does this like resonate with you? For sure. And that's the thing. It, it felt very familiar to me when there is finally a term uh, put to this feeling I had. And honestly, it started probably in my MA program, my master's program, because I was a journalism major as an undergrad. So I was really good at writing short, pithy articles. I was a news writer, a feature writer. I did some radio news and television news. And I was really, I was actually pretty good at that writing. And I went on to be a freelance writer for a bit. But here in Michigan, uh, not to be too long winded, but the the market of journalism changed drastically. When I was younger, I wanted nothing more than to work at the Detroit Free Press. I just thought that was the coolest place. But by the time I sort of finished up um, my journalism degree in the early 2000s, the market had changed immensely. So here I was um, writing some freelance articles and I thought, well, I'll go back and get my master's degree and perhaps I can teach writing. But when I got there, it was like everyone had read all these really important books, okay? I mean, I just remember feeling really out of place. And even though I was doing super well in my classes, I always felt like I was three steps behind. I remember everyone was talking about George Orwell's Animal Farm. I don't know what it was about Mary Grove College in Detroit, but everyone was really hot for Animal Farm. And I was like, man, that's just another thing I haven't read, you know? And then they were talking about Jonathan Safran Foer. And I'm like, oh, man, I've got to read all his books now. And it just seemed like I was always trying to play catch up. And, you know, it wasn't reflected in my grades. I did quite well. But I always felt like this sense of like, I'm faking this somehow. I'm not a real English major. And then I get to Wayne State, right? And I'm there with you. You know, you probably speak multiple languages and you've been so well read. And then there were some other people in the cohort that just seemed to have so much together and talking about all these theoretical concepts. And I'm even kind of embarrassed to say this, but like the first week of our classes, 
I was just dumbfounded. And I'm like, I know I'm reading what everyone else is reading, but I feel like I'm just not getting it. And this has persisted. And I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit about this. And I'm not like sort of an egotistical person, but I actually did pretty well. I had a pretty successful career during our graduate days. I mean, I got five years of funding which doesn't happen for everyone. That was pretty awesome. And then I even won this Humanity Center fellowship, which was a pretty huge success. That wasn't just for English majors. That was like from a university-wide pool of candidates. So I got that. But I was still always like, yeah, I'm just not as good as everyone else. Yeah, I'm still behind. They've st- and, you know, the funny thing about being a literature major, and I'd love to hear from people in other fields, is that you can never have all the books read. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's... You could never be caught up on everything. And, you know, that's the hard part of it. Like, so you'll feel like, oh, I finally made all this progress. I read all these new books. But then people say, well, hey, have you read this? Right. No, damn it. I'm gonna have to put that on my shelf. And so, you know, that persisted throughout graduate school, even with accolades. And I felt like I kind of started to understand and start to really write a little bit more in tune with the writing expected in that genre, which was so different than writing journalistic articles. And I finally started to get better at it. But then once again, when I got to that dissertation process, like I said, I started to really feel like a fraud and a phony then because I'm like, why am I not getting this? Everyone else is getting this and and I'm not. So that's a long answer, Judith, but um, definitely something I've been, I dealt with a lot during our grad school days for sure. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the classes are difficult, especially, you know, something that you're mentioning is just to look at what other people have read and feeling like you need to read the same things. I think there's a lot there because, you know, everybody, it's hard to see the things to, or to focus on the things that you have read that other people haven't read just to sort of like balance it out. Right. Like you're, you tend like in a scenario like that, you're, you know, you're seeing, Oh, everybody seems to be familiar with this. Everybody seems to be familiar with this. And um, for me, it was just very difficult to keep up with the reading And so because I'm like a very sort of like meticulous reader, I'm not very good at skimming. And so um, it took me a very long time to realize that like other people aren't actually reading every word of every page either. (laughs) Right, right. Um, So I, you know, I would come to class and I would be like, oh man, I didn't get this done. And like, now I have to talk about it. And I, you know, I never, I was always behind on the reading. And, you know, partially I think that was because it wasn't, you know, my native language, but also... Um, just because, like I said, I'm I'm a very slow reader and I've never really, you know, been able to to get faster at that. And so then you're sitting in class and everybody seems to be speaking so knowledge, knowledgeably about these texts. And it's hard to, you know, to remind yourself that, oh, ma- you know, maybe they also just read, you know, the intro in one chapter and that's enough to talk about it or whatever. Um, or maybe they did read the whole book. I don't know. One thing when you're talking about, I used to, I'm going to put this out here. I used to fib. People would say, oh, have you read that? And I'd say, yes, when I hadn't. And I finally got to a point about midway through where I was like, you know what? Stop lying. It's okay to say you haven't read everything. But I just remember being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've I've read that. And just again, it was trying to feel like I didn't want to seem like if this is this really seminal text that everyone has read and I haven't. Oh, I better. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna. They're gonna find out that I'm the fraud. I'm a phony. I don't really know what I'm talking about. So that resonated with me. Beyond the reading and keeping up with the reading, was there anything else that made you feel that way in graduate school at all? 
it was hard for me to, there were just some classes where I felt like I'd never really connected to the material and I never really understood like what the conversations were. And some of that was because it was completely new. Some, some of the things were just, um, topics and areas that I hadn't been exposed to like an earlier, you know, in my master's program or before that. There's also something about, you know, the publishing. I feel like that was another thing where that, where it was just so hard to put yourself out there, publishing and conferences, both, um, where it's like, you're, you're putting yourself out there, you're putting your work out there. Um, and it's always hard to push yourself. And then I, you know, I do remember thinking like, being accepted to a conference and just being like, oh, well, everybody gets accepted to this one or things like that, you know, where it's hard to give yourself the, sometimes it can be hard to give yourself the credit that you deserve for the work that you have done. Right. And I wonder too, part of, I think my feelings of inadequacy ties back to something that we've mentioned a lot and to the sort of theme of the entire podcast, which was, I was a parent actually when I started my master's program, I had one son and then had my daughter and then I had a second daughter in that program, and then I got to Wayne, and I had my third daughter. And I feel as though some of my feelings of being a fraud or phony are tied to the fact that I am a parent, which seems really ridiculous in a way. But I always felt like, again, I'm kind of play acting. And Ashley kind of talked about this a little bit last week. But just this idea of like, well, I'm kind of stepping in both worlds. Yeah. You know, I'm, am I a mother pretending to be a scholar or am I a scholar trying to pretend that I'm a mother? Which is it? And I think there's a way to negotiate both of those roles. But I sometimes felt like I was doing each a disservice that, you know, maybe I wasn't keeping up on my reading because I was spending time with my kids or then maybe I wasn't spending that time I needed to with my children because I was really knee deep in this, you know, heavy, heavy reading load. And I know the research that you've done has thought a lot about, you know, this connection to gender and working women and representations of maternity. But I wondered, um, is there any connection to gender when we're thinking about this imposter syndrome? So um, there's different research that people have done, right? And so the one... Um, one article that we found um, from the APA by uh, Kristen Weir, there was research that was done where they sort of started with the um, with the assumption that the that this was uh, something that was more prevalent among women. So the imposter syndrome, just to sort of uh, say that as a side note, is not listed as an official diagnosis in the DSM, but it is still sort of acknowledged by psychologists and others as a very real and specific thing that happens that is like a form of intellectual doubt. And it's also often tied to um, anxiety and depression. And I think that kind of takes us back a little bit to what we've already talked about in the past, or at least I, you know, I was thinking about this a lot uh, when I was thinking about sort of like my hormonal depression and the, you know, how that sort of overlapped with some anxiety about um, this, about schoolwork. So uh, Kirsten Weir, the article in the APA that we note and that we, that we will link in the show notes, she writes that Clans and Imes, when they first started talking about the imposter syndrome, they thought that it was unique to women, but a lot of people have done more research and have revealed that men can suffer from this just as well. It looks like high achievers of both genders have this experience of feeling like a fraud 
um, of feeling out of place and of feeling like, or of having this fear that they're going to be found out that they're somewhere where they shouldn't be. I like that you mentioned anxiety as well, because that kind of really speaks to my experience with trying to keep up in graduate school and then beyond this idea that like, I have to go, go, go. And there's always something that needs to be done. And I already had some anxiety issues in the past as noted. But I remember one time um, going to a class, I think it was a postmodern class, and I didn't get the reading done. And I know this sounds like, again, because I did try to do all the reading all the time. And I remember I just, it was like, it was a big reading load, you know, because sometimes we had like maybe a three or 400 page novel to read with probably another dense scholarly article or two sometimes, right? They weren't just close readings. They were like very theoretical, deep readings that you really had to take your time with. And I remember sitting there, I was in the um, Starbucks cafe on campus and my heart just started racing and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I probably had had a lot of coffee, but so much coffee. it was like, <laughs> it was like, but I was like, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm like, I thought I had enough time. I thought I had enough time. Yeah. I thought I had enough time and oh, I just didn't. I remember and that I, now. you know, I'm just like, I don't know. I, and, and, um, our advisor who was a teacher for that course, I went and saw her in her office cause I was actually going to try to like, you know, skip out on class. And she was just like, here's a bottle of water. I think what you should do is just sit quietly in the back of the class and, you know, just, just, you know, try to calm yourself down. Don't feel like you need to speak out or anything. And um, I just, I still felt so nervous and jittery that whole class, but by the end I was okay, you know, but I just, I just remember it was like this thing over me, like washing over me, like you're not going to finish. You you still have 50 pages and there's 45 minutes. You're just not going to finish. And I, I had to be okay with that. But that feeling of like anxiety and pressure to get it all done, where does that come from? I mean, I guess it is that I want to achieve. I want to be, you know, I want to do my very best here, but I just, oh, I don't miss that. And we can speak more to this later, but I think then it kind of may not just go away after graduate school. (laughs) So that's kind of interesting as well. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, it'll be interesting to talk a little bit about how that, how that plays out in our other jobs, because some of what we're describing here, I definitely recognize from the work that I do now, but just going, having you, listening to you, like describe that experience of sitting there with the article and realizing that you don't have enough time that like gave me a flashback because I feel like I went through <laughs> that like every week. That was very, yeah, that was a very common experience for experience for me to just sit there and, and feel how like time is slipping away and I'm not going to get it done, even though I'm trying so hard. The over, the, the emphasis on overachievement is something that the researchers focus a lot about uh, or a lot on. And they're talking about, you know, they, they've looked at the family context and the family backgrounds that some people have that, you know, deal with imposter syndrome. And what they're, what they're finding is that, um, a lot of these, a lot of the people that they studies came from homes where the parents sent mixed messages a lot, where they were, where the parents were alternating between overpraise and criticism. Is that something that you experienced? Was that true in your case? Or would you describe your your parenthood, your parents and your childhood differently? You know, I had an original answer to that. And I started thinking about it a little bit more carefully. You know, I grew up in a, I felt like I was the oldest of the children. I only have a sister that I grew up with. And I 
always was known as kind of the smart kid. And it was kind of a great feeling. And even when I'd go to my um, grandparents' house, I had a set of grandparents that were from Scotland. And so I just remember my grandma would say in her little Scottish accent, oh, if we don't know something, we'll ask Erin. And, you know, she'd, she'd <laughs> like they and so I loved that, you know, and I was really I really did well. And we've talked about this and I know you did too. Like I really liked being in elementary school, the smartest person in the class. Right. I, th- I got a lot of, yeah. a lot of joy out of that, which is, and I don't think my parents put a lot of pressure on me at that time because it was just so easy for me to do well. But then my dad could be very critical about other things. Um, if that makes sense. So he was never really particularly critical about my schoolwork, but then he could be extremely critical about other things as far as like my, uh, corporeality, my um, body shape, how much I weighed, what I looked like. And so that was kind of tough. And my dad and my grandparents, they all were very critical in that realm. So I think I was, when I really think about it, receiving some mixed messages like accolades for my brains, but maybe some put downs for, you know, my massive weight gain in seventh grade or something like that. So there was a little bit more of that mixture there. Um, My mom was always really supportive. I think my mom is like my number one fan, which is good. You know, that's how it should be, I think. Yeah. But was there any part of that that resonated with you, if you want to share? I mean, is that like something that you kind of noticed growing up at all? Well, it actually what you're describing sounds very similar to what my experience was. I think that like for for me growing up, it was always just kind of a thing. Like there wasn't pressure that I had to get good grades and I wasn't good in all subject areas. So especially when I got to high school, there were certain areas that I just like didn't do well in. And I never felt that there was pressure but I do feel like there was sort of like an expectation like it was just like I was you know I was getting good grades and that was expected um and not like in a necessary and I and I and now you know that I'm thinking about it I'm wondering if that expectation sort of put that pressure on me or like had or made me like internalize the pressure in a certain way I don't think my parents would have ever said anything critical of me if I had if I hadn't gotten good grades or if I had to like uh you know retake a class or anything like that that I don't think that that would have been an issue but at the same time there was just sort of this general vibe that like I you know I would get good grades and so I think you know maybe my own expectation then became that and so um in a lot of ways I was very motivated by good grades and so I think that's a huge factor where it's like that external motivation you know the high achievement or like the goal to achieve highly has to be sort of acknowledged by someone else it's not that internal motivation right I think that probably has a lot to do with it (laughs) Yeah. And I I remember asking you if this was like a very American phenomenon, because I believe it is. But we always had these like massive award ceremonies all the way through school from like kindergarten on. So starting in kindergarten, I won a writing award. This is so cheesy and corny that I remember this, but I won an award for something I wrote. And I didn't even write it out. Okay, I told the story to someone who wrote it for me, but I got a first place. And I was like, yes. And so I still have because, okay, this probably speaks to this. And I wonder if anyone else has a folder like this, but I still have a folder of all my awards from kindergarten oh, wow. to through That's high school. So neat. <laughs> it's really funny though. It's kind of dorky, but like, this is what we're talking, like who else would do that and like have it and have kept it. Like yeah. it's traveled to apartments and houses and, you know, into my marriage. And I still have this corny folder. 
I don't know. I think it speaks to like our sort of the way we have internalized things, because again, it's not our own pressure. I should mention that I really had a terrible, um, my undergraduate career was not great. And I don't know if that was me trying to rebel against all this. I mean, I was, I kind of delved into like more of the party scene because I think I wanted to break away from the whole nerdy persona or whatever you want to call it. And I didn't have a great, it actually took me, I think, almost close to six years to finish my four-year BA. So that Mm -hmm. was another reason, yet again, when I got to my master's program, I really felt like I really have to be high achieving now. I really have to do my best. Let's talk a little bit more about the the context of higher education. Um, I think there's I think there's something there. You know, there's so many of our stu- of our friends and colleagues from grad school share this experience, and I was wondering if there wasn't maybe something structural about the academy that sort of exacerbates the problem or you know, predestines grad students for this experience. And I think there are two things that really set grad students up to experience this. One is sort of something uh, very structural about just research and research productivity and how it is set up in the academy. The idea is that you come up with something, you know, you put together a, a a paper, a seminar paper, a paper that you take to a conference. And then you put that in front of a bunch of people that are all really, really good at thinking critically and taking other people's arguments apart. So there's something like there's like this mandatory, like you have to demonstrate what you're doing to people that are bound to just like show you how wrong you are because that's (laughs) their job and that's what they do. Right. So that so that really, I think, uh, facilitates feelings of insecurity. Like, I think you have to be really self-confident to not sort of struggle with that criticism once in a while. And then I think that's, you know, related to my second thought on that, which is that as grad students, we have this sort of like in-between status where we're half the time we're treated as independent scholars. We're supposed to like write a dissertation, which is basically an entire book. But then at the same time, our work is also graded and evaluated like, you know, that of undergrad students. So it makes it really difficult to feel like a part of the scholarly community that we're trying to enter, I think, because there's just like there, you know, you're weighing yourself in, or you you think you're feeling safe and secure because you know the because of the small seminars and every you know there's these conversations and they're really exciting and they're really engaging and then um but then there's like this other side of it where you're just being evaluated on a rubric by somebody and so it feels almost like a rite of passage something that you have to like work through on your way to your dissertation defense so that in addition to like the knowledge that you acquire during your PhD program, you also have to develop a skill set to sort of combat these feelings of doubts. Aaron, did that does that uh, sound reasonable? Did you come up with any good strategies during during grad school to help you with this? Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, you so much what you said made sense to me. I mean, I remember the moniker publish or perish. I mean, perish? Really? I have to perish if I don't publish? I mean, that's pretty extreme. But there's that pressure. And, you know, one can do really well. We are both really good students. We had awesome discussions in some of these seminar classes. But then you go out of that comfort zone where you don't know people. And if certain people are not really comfortable speaking in public, I mean, that's what a conference is. It's like, 
public yeah. speaking in a room full of really, really, really smart people, as you said, that aren't afraid to tell you what is wrong with your thinking. And that can be right. really intimidating. And sometimes people are really great and they give you helpful comments, which are framed in a way that is supportive and constructive, but sometimes they can just be downright mean, yeah. you know? And the funny thing is, Okay, so so much of what we work with is theoretical. We are looking at words and coming up with this idea of like explaining, building a new understanding through this theoretical framework, you know? And so really, there is always a way to say that something someone said is right. And there's always a way to say that, no, it's actually wrong. And I just, sometimes those conferences can be really, really anxiety-inducing they can be really great. And then something else you were talking about, too, is just the the grading aspect of things, right? Getting that feedback. Yeah. I think you have to grow an incredibly thick skin to be yeah. able to go through all this. I have cried after meetings about my writing. And now I think it's, you know, but I feel like, again, in the structure of it, and I, I don't want to step on anyone's toes here, but I think there is a sense that, like, well, this is the way it's always been done. I don't want to call it hazing, but in a way, it reminds me of going through these rings of hell because everyone else had to go through the rings of hell. So you're going yeah. to do it as well. And I often wonder if there's a better way of doing this uh, grad school thing. I think it could be updated. You know, I think it could be updated right. for the new millennium. Yeah. You know, I have yeah. nothing else to compare it to. And you mentioned this before. It's like you're writing this book. I've never written a book before. And it's kind of like, right. OK, as you said, you're off on your own do it, figure it out, you know, look at a few other dissertations and try to figure out if uh, you're following the generic formatting and style. I think I am, but it's, it can be very, it can be a time of a lot of self-doubt. And so to me, I have gotten better about this, but here's the caveat. And I love where I work. Again, I can't say enough about the people I work with are all super dedicated scholars, but here's the next phase. So I finished. Did the syndrome go away? No, it didn't. So I continue to have promotions and that's great. But then I go to the conferences now and the big thing now is, yeah, but you're not in R1 school, Erin, are you? Right. And all these people are, you know, and so I was at the MLA, which is, you know, arguably kind of the biggest conference in our yeah. field. You know, uh, the panel I was on, everyone else was from really top tier universities. And so I thought, what the hell am I doing here? Why? What gives me the yeah. right to even talk with these people or be in this panel? And so it didn't really go away. So now I have just this other whole thing, which is, well, you got the PhD, you've been published, you've written book chapters, you know. But you're still not really like these other people because they're at Duke and they're at Harvard. Um, it was that yeah. ASAP conference, too. That one was pretty overwhelming as well. You know, and then it's like sometimes you're in a room with like people you've quoted in your work. So I think it's fair to say that the feeling of being an imposter or a phony in some way has continued to resonate. It just manifests in a different way. I'm feeling it in different contexts and different areas of my work. So did you feel like this manifested or changed at all during other stages of your academic career? With the job market, I feel like right. I would like kind of... Uh, made it through the grad program okay and then once I got to the job market stage I was like okay this is not um this I'm not going to be able to handle this <laughs> so right, uh, right I think there it was just like yeah you know part of the same part of the same thing like why you know what do I have to offer like 
what is what does my dissertation even speak to like nobody you know is looking for somebody in this particular field like there's always already um somebody who has who checks way more boxes in the in the application and you know why why even try kind of thing so but i hate um, hearing that too because then i've heard of other folks that maybe didn't have the most stunning dissertation but they just sell themselves you know and then i've heard this other thing like it doesn't matter what the job ad says you know if you have like if you can do some of the things it's asked for you better be applying to it and i'm like really but you know <laughs> yeah i I've, just like never really bought into that because right? i i just there's not at a job market where there's like 600 applications to a to a job posting like right. i just or 800 or 900 or a thousand or however many they're getting right now. I don't know if anybody's listening. That's on, that's been on a hiring committee recently. I would love to hear some numbers, but right. Right. What about applying for alt academic careers? Do you think that that feeling of being an imposter still resonates when you are applying for a job that is not a teaching position? You're facing if that's if that's the challenge with the with the academic job market, you're not going to fix it by going on a different job market because then you're even more out of place. And it's even more like you're you know, you have other people that you're you're competing with other people that have qualifications that are more um, geared towards what the job description is. So, you know, it's always it's always an issue, I think. Yeah. So there's a lot to talk about there. Keeping all of this in mind, it's interesting that the APA or the American Psychological Association offers a number of quick tips to kind of start thinking about how to negate this feeling of being a phony, like recognizing your expertise and remembering what you do well, realizing that no one's perfect, trying to change your thinking, and then it does suggest talk to someone that can help. And so yet again, counseling, therapy, these are things that are incredibly helpful to people, I think, who struggle with issues regarding, I mean, I would say this kind of connects back to self-esteem, right? There's something there with that feeling lesser than or I'm not worthy. I would say it connects a little bit to that, don't you think? Yeah, I I remember like my counselor. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't even remember like the context of. I must have talked to her about something related, and I just remember her bringing up something like, you know, could you maybe do instead of doing like a hundred percent, could you maybe do eighty? Like, could you maybe do eighty percent? Because like the last 20% to get it from like, you know, 80% quality to like 100% quality, the last 20% are actually a lot more of your energy than like the first 80%. And I was just like, I don't like, I don't think I could do that. Right, right. Like just kind of, <laughs> right. And right. so that was, so I think, you know, having some, so the idea of like talking to somebody, yeah, I think that's, that's probably a good idea because they can give you some different perspectives on, you know, like just some different ideas that, you know, just different ways to think about this, this goal of perfectionism maybe, or like even just to confront you with your own perfectionism. Like I don't, I didn't realize that that was how I was approaching things until she asked me that question. And I had to be like, I don't know that I can do that. Um, and the, but the, and the other thing too, what you're saying with insecurity and lack of confidence, I think it helps to have other people's perspectives 
because it is so difficult to see these things on your own. You know, when we're looking at the list of the APA recommendations to recognize your expertise and to remember what you do well, sometimes it is just so hard to be able to identify those things. And then it helps to talk to somebody else who can be like, hey, I think you're really great at X. Um, and then to just remember uh, remember those things. So, yeah. And I think this kind of speaks to gender a bit too, as you're talking about this, that yeah. there's a part of me that feels like I need to be modest about my accomplishments. Yes. And I would like to, again, explore how this relates differently to male and female academics, because I feel like I always have to be kind of quiet. And I feel like if I had a different personality type, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? I did just get another book chapter done. That's awesome. Or wow, yeah, yeah, I did win this award. Instead, I felt bad about winning my um, dissertation fellowship because it meant another colleague did not get it. And so I didn't didn't put anything on social media about it. I was just like, "Mm, yeah, but... You know, right, right. Uh, so I was very quiet about some of these accomplishments. And to me, I think that kind of goes with like, well, you have to be modest, you should be humble, you know, and I think yeah. that's a learned behavior, whereas others would, you know, it's interesting, though. I don't know if it is gender, because I do know, I have other female colleagues who are like really good at like singing their praises, but maybe we need yeah. to be a little bit more like that. So there's there's a yeah. weird tension there, too. Wow, That's I can't true. believe they're bragging that, you know, I don't know, just different little things. And I'm like, what's wrong with that, though? Yeah, There's nothing wrong with that. Just to be able to say like, hey, this is something that I'm really good at. This is like one of my strong suits. Like, you know, a task comes up and, you know, something comes up at work and like somebody needs to, you know, volunteer for a task. And then to just be able to say, hey, this is actually, you know, I'm I'm probably really good at this. I'm probably a good candidate. I can help out the t- even just to be yeah. like, I can help out the team. That can be difficult. Like, you know, that can be really difficult. It's easier to sit back and let somebody else snag it. So this seems pretty complicated and it's tied up in so much. Um, I wanted to skip back. You talked about perfectionism. Is there anything more to say about this idea of um, does this idea of being um, an imposter, does that ever lead to kind of this idea of, or does it connect to perfectionism? Researchers have found a distinct connection between perfectionism and the imposter syndrome. They have found that that imposters often think that every task they do has to be done perfectly and they don't like to ask for help. And that can lead them to either procrastinate on a task. So they put it off, they put it off, they put it off because they want to do it perfectly. And then in the end, there's not enough time to do anything at all. Or the opposite is that they over-prepare and then spend way more time than they need to on something. And Aaron, I like reading this out loud, I always feel like I'm the procrastinator and you're the over-preparer. Do you think that's true? <laughs> I was just going to ask you, like, where do you see yourself on that spectrum? And that's absolutely 100% what I was thinking that. But I remember you telling me how you wrote your seminar papers and like you think about it and think about it and mull it over and mull it over. But then you'd sit down and just, what did you say? You'd spend like the whole day typing it out in one sitting. Am I remembering this right? And it would be done, right? I used to be a binge writer. Yeah, for absolutely. Like I I remember that though. Yeah, but it's a lot of mulling over and it's, I, it's not entirely just procrastinating procrastination, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about exactly what the argument is that I want to make and how I'm going to build it. So when I sit down to start writing, I usually have an outline that already sort of um, outlines um, what 
direction the argument like how I'm going to get from one argument to the next so I have all of that usually thought through which is why the dissertation was a challenge because you can do that for a 15 page seminar paper but you can't do that for a 200 page book so uh, pro tip then, you know. right <laughs> <laughs> yeah but no That's- your your wording was always really perfect is what I mean to say and I'd be like damn how did she you know what I mean because I'd be like oh you know and I just think of like different things like I was trying to clean out all my Google drives and I found the materials I had for the job I applied for, which I've had now for four years. And yeah. it was just so crazily overprepared. Like there was a slideshow, there were handouts, there was an icebreaker. And like, I didn't even go through half of the stuff because it was like an hour interview. And in my interview, I had to do a teaching yeah. demo, but the students were not students. They were actually colleagues and coworkers or would become my oh, coworkers. Boy. So that was really awkward. But I had so many things and I was just like, how do I have all this for one, you know, hour? And it was just I just was laughing because I'm looking at that and I'm like, yep, that's me. And I had a little but thing. And it worked. I mean, and you were well, prepared. Like you would have been, you know, if they had asked about the other half, then you would have been prepared for the other half. That's the problem is you don't know which part of it they're going right. to ask about. And that's a really, that's can be really stressful. And I'm yeah. always early for things. And that's really stressful. That's and true. people said, oh, it must be, must be nice to be early. And I'm like, no, it's actually really not be- because then you're early and you're waiting and you get really nervous and anxious that sometimes I'm like, am I here on the right day? Did I get it right? Is something wrong? Is the other person not showing up? Um, so I that's think so this funny. idea. Because yeah. that matches that total because I'm always late, as you know, and <laughs> I always have to apologize to you that I'm running late yet again. I should probably just remember that you're always early, but I tend to be like, okay, I have, if I leave now, I'm going to waste 15 minutes. So what can I do with 15 minutes? And then what I decide to do ends up taking 20 minutes and then I'm five minutes late. So we've talked a lot about this in this realm of academia, higher education, work life, grad school, but with your research in mind, do you feel like this is something that has played into parenting and but more in particular, maybe mothers. Do you think that there is a sense, can we say that some new mothers feel like they're an imposter at all? Have you encountered that in any of your work? I personally, when when you suggested that we talk about this, this was sort of like the first thing that my mind jumped to. Um, I, you know, obviously I had a little bit of imposter syndrome in in grad school or more specifically when I, once I hit the job market, but it wasn't something that I struggled with there as much as I did in sort of like my personal life and in my parenting. And so I was interested in looking into that a little bit more. And there's actually like quite a few articles, um, quite a few sort of like online discussions already going on about what um, imposter syndrome feels like for mothers. And I do think that there's something specific to about throw, being thrown into a job that is just so different and that everybody else seems to have figured out. Like everybody else has right. like all of these, you get so much advice and everybody is like, oh, you should do it exactly this one way. You should do it exactly this other, this one way. Um, and everybody f- seems to have figured it out. And then, you know, you go from reading about it, but like not really knowing what it is w- one day to like being a parent the next day and then having kind of to figure it all out at once while you're also recovering from childbirth and while you're getting used to like all of these other hormonal shifts and um, all these other things. And so there are so many things that like, you know, we can think about in terms of like roles of what new mothers have to do and feel possibly 
unprepared for, such as, you know, so some of the things that we that we listed, you know, are like bathing your baby, um, feeding your baby, you know, like how does so many people, so many women struggle with breastfeeding. Right. Um, and that is such a, that's, and I feel like, you know, they bring in the lactation consultant and they, you know, this person looks over your shoulder and that person wants to check. And then the doctor wants to weigh the baby. And like, if the baby didn't gain, you know, eight ounces, then, oh, you know, you must not be latching right, or you must not have enough milk. And so it's so hard to like feel confident in your own parenting. If you're doing it for the first time, dressing is the same way or like, you or, you know, with feeding too, like the, you know, once you transition to solids, how do you do that? Um, and then there, you know, there are so many decisions that new moms have to make and, you know, like you choose the doctors and then you have to, you know, figure out vaccination schedules as if that's something, even if you're choosing to go with the recommended schedule, that's still a choice that you have to, you know, think about and make, right. um, picking schools and scare take and caretakers and things like that. And you're doing all of it on a lack of sleep. So I feel like there's just, um, there's just so much going on that when you first start, you know, being a mom, there's everybody seems to have figured it out. There's advice coming from all different directions, but all of the d- advice is conflicting. And it's, yeah. So for me, it was really difficult to gain that confidence. I had a lot of help and that was appreciated a ton. But at the same time, it also meant that for a really, really long time, I never had to do anything myself. Oh, and so and so I didn't ever do anything myself because I didn't have the confidence and then I didn't build the confidence. So it was kind of like a vicious cycle. I started relying on that help a lot. Um, and then I never was able to build the confidence. I never had these experiences where I was like, oh, I figured that one out. Um, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could tell myself I figured that one out. And so, um, it's definitely something, it's definitely something that I've experienced. And there's certainly some research out there that says that supports that point And that says that, um, that says that, that mothers experience that, um, quite often. Is it, Aaron, I don't know what, what was that something you always strike me as a very like confident in your mothering. Um, is that something that you've had to learn over the years or, um, are you, are you still struggling with that sometimes too? Okay. I was going to say you made me think of like three smart things, but now I have four, um, smart things to think of that you made me think of. Uh, first I was thinking that unlike grad school where we get to practice teaching and, you know, you go in and you have classes and you're working with them, you learn that skill. Um, you can't practice nursing a baby, okay? You can try to go to these classes where they tell you how to give a baby a bath, but it's a doll, okay? And maybe you gave someone else's child a bath, maybe. I'm doubting it, though. You don't usually go around giving, like, a newborn infant a bath when you're 18 or 20. And so there's really no prep for that. So as much as, like, if you're already kind of a person that uh, has those feelings, it's not like anything really prepares you hands-on to have a, a baby on the breast, right? You can imagine it. You can read about it, but you have to wait for it to happen. So there's that lack of preparation. When you were talking about all the people kind of circulating and watching you, that also made me feel like I must not be doing something right. And then the really kind of grad school thing I wanted to say there was it made me think of Michelle Foucault and this idea of like all the powers circulating, but like the medicalization, biopower of like all these people 
who are doctors and um, sometimes are, in fact, tied to the state. So I don't want to get too much off on that tangent. But I was just thinking about, you know, um, when I first had my kids, I was receiving some uh, assistance through WIC because being an adjunct professor, I didn't have a lot of money. And there were indeed all these different folks coming and watching me and like taking my breast and like putting it in the baby's mouth. And, you know, (laughs) and it's just it's it's, um, you know, I know it's in the best interest, but it just felt a little a little like the good old metaphor of the panopticon, right? Like everyone's looking at you and are you doing it right? And are you a good mother? Um, And then the last thing I was thinking about, as I mentioned before, was you wrote a lot about this, but social media, I think, has really made a lot of parents. I'm going to go out on a limb and say more. It's more representations of mothers. I I know there's some pretty awesome dads that do posts, but I don't think it's quite the same amount where if I were to look to social media, everyone seems to be doing a better job than I am. I mean, even (laughs) in the, even in the apocalypse or not, I'm sorry, not the apocalypse, (laughs) even in the pandemic, we're not at apocalypse (laughs) yet. They're still making amazing sandwiches and, you know, creating bento boxes for their children. (laughs) And I'm still like, I don't know, guys, have some cereal. I think we have fruity pebbles. I know it's terrible, but I just can't, you know, so I think that idea. And then so as we know, my children are older now. Um, it it seems to strike really a lot when they're so young. But I would say I still get it sometimes when I'm reading about people's interactions with their older kids. And am I doing things right? You know, wow, this mom is doing this awesome project with her daughter and this and this and this. And should I be doing more of that? Am I failing somehow? And so no, you did. I do not feel like I know what I'm doing. Um, most of the time I'm like, I need, I, I feel like, I hope I'm not blowing it. I mean, I think the evidence is that my kids are nice. Um, what I like is when we did have teacher conferences, they usually say they're polite. I know my kids support civil rights. I know they're against homophobia and other um, problematic things like that. So I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty good with them. Right. But I still feel like I hope it's, I hope I'm doing okay. So, and my son is 16. So, you know, I know he's doing well in school, but there's all these other questions about social things. And, you know, when you get teenagers, there's this whole other variety of situations happening. And so I feel like to end it there, I mean, I'm still struggling. I think it's something that you're constantly evaluating. And then I'm sure our parents as grandparents, I would hope are introspective to think, I hope I'm being a good, you know, I wonder if they still feel like, am I doing the right, am I doing my best work as a grandparent? I don't know. I hope they think, that will be me anyway, as a grandparent, like, oh my gosh, am I doing it the right way? I don't know. I don't feel like a grandparent yet. (laughs) A couple of the articles that I read in preparation for today were mentioning that, you know, it gets better. um, But I also think that that's maybe a little bit over optimistic just in terms of like the changes that kids go through right if it's not nursing and if it's not you know like are they feeding okay are they eating okay are they growing okay then it's like you know is are their teeth are they brushing their teeth enough and then you know you're just the there's just always something new that uh that comes up where you have to figure it out again um and i think you know what you're saying about Social media is really important. Even before social media, you know, I think we've for a good sort of maybe 30 years now, we've lived under motherhood standards that are extremely high. 
And for, you know, those of us that are high, you know, high achieving or whatever, if that's what, you know, if that's how we want to refer to ourselves. Um, but at least those are the kinds of personalities that tend towards the uh, imposter syndrome to subscribe to these motherhood standards that are just so extremely high and to want to fulfill those, it's almost setting us up for um, for failure because it's just so much. And then, you know, social media, I think, really, really has fed into that more and more over the last few years. I think you're absolutely right about that. And in some ways, I do believe that we all know that social media are just snapshots. I think there's sort of like a cognitive awareness that people tend not to share the messy sides of life. And even if they do, somehow the people that share the messy sides of life on Instagram or other social media still figure out a way to make it look glamorous, right? There's still like something special about their messiness. Um, But what I really realized just recently was the way that, you know, we're comparing ourselves to others is not, is like a, combination of multiple online personas right so like you're you follow all of these different moms on um on social media like for me you know obviously i'm most active on instagram but i'm sure facebook is still the same um you know you have some moms that make all the sandwiches or that bake all the breads during the quarantine and then you have some moms that do all the art projects and then you have some moms that like you know are have really great book recommendations and some moms sew their own clothes and some moms have like really nice like clean houses or whatever um and then when i when i see that in my instagram feed it's hard for me to forget sometimes that no one single mom does all of the things right but somehow it becomes this like ideal of a mom that does all of those things and so it's hard to forget a that you know most you know, the women that are posting these things online post like the one thing that they're really, really good at a lot, especially when you have themed accounts. Um, And then, you know, what, and then, so I might have one thing that I'm really, really good at and, but I'm trying to like do all of these things. And at the same time, I might be good at something that's not Instagrammable. Like what if I'm really, you know, what if I'm really good at what were some of my hypothetical examples? My hypothetical example that I thought of was pretend play. I really hate pretend play. I'm not good at it at all, (laughs) but it's my example. What if I'm really good at that? How am I going to put that on Instagram without ruining the moment? Like if you can't stop, 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 wait. Yeah. I got to, I got to film this. Um, So, so I think there's two sides, right? Like what, you know, taking, taking all of these different pieces and, and piecing them together as like one ideal is obviously detrimental, but, and, and not focusing on, you know, whatever one or two strong suits we have. And then to think about what's, you know, what's Instagrammable, like, so, but the question sometimes does become like, you know, if I can't even bake a nice cake for my kid's birthday, like, what am I even doing being a mom? Right. Kind so, of. And you mentioned that, you know, on some level, we know that this isn't what their day to day life is like. But I also knew that the Brady Bunch wasn't real or Mrs. Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver or any of those other, you know, to go back, I would say even, you know, to like the um, golden age of television. 
I knew that those moms weren't quote unquote real, but somehow there's this like, you know, the ideologies kind of shape us and they're, they're stuck there, right? Just like I know rom-com movies are corny, but there's a part of me that still believes in some really silly love at first sight because I, I, they, I've been, I don't want to say brainwashed, but you know, they've influenced me and I've seen enough of those things to kind of think, well, maybe. Um, so I'm not saying people on Instagram are like um, Carol Brady, on the Brady Bunch, but maybe a little. So I don't know. No, I I love, you know, and I love social media. And I think it's been actually a really great way to like stay in touch with people over this um, pandemic. But I think we've had a really rich conversation today. And I wanted to ask you kind of in tune with this whole theme of this episode, which is the imposter syndrome. We don't really necessarily have a hack, but you had some really great ideas for maybe kind of helping us work through this. And I wanted to know if you would share those ideas to kind of, and maybe they're hacks, but maybe they're just ways of reminding ourselves that we do belong and that we're not imposters and that we're not phonies. So what were those ideas that you had? Right. So the first idea that I listed is definitely comes from like my journaling, um, the journaling side of me. Um, And so this is something that experts suggest a lot is just to keep a list of your accomplishment, whatever they are. Um, you know, an article that you got published in a really good journal or, you know, a student evaluations that went really well or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that, that you can think of, you know, whenever you accomplish something, just write it down, keep a list and make sure to know where that list is and to pull that list out when you're feeling down about yourself. And a related idea that I have and that I've used in the past too, um, this goes back to my uh, my master's advisor, actually. My master's thesis advisor um, always gave her students copies of her letters of recommendation for that very reason. She said, we all at some point get to a point where we're feeling out of place, where we're feeling low about ourselves, um, where we're losing confidence in our ability or, you know, the trust that we're in the right place. Um, so, and I know that not everybody does that, but if you can get people who are writing recommendation letters, um, for you to share them with you, then again, keep them handy and just read them every once in a while, because other people have such a great perspective and they're so good at identifying things about ourselves that we don't really, um, necessarily see ourselves that just to read that from another, from another, it's, it feels like I feel less self-conscious about it. Like, it, you know, I'm not very good at like telling myself all these things that I'm, you know, that I'm right. good at. Like, I don't keep like a, you know, you have a great smile posted on my mirror because I just feel silly about that. But if it comes from somebody else, I can take it a little bit better. Um, and then the final thing is, you know, I th- and we mentioned that, I think briefly earlier, you have to kind of catch that negative self-talk. And I think the trick about that is really to even notice. I think a lot of times we don't notice that it's going, that it's going that way. And we can't combat something like imposter syndrome if we're not aware of it. So a lot of that I think has to do with, uh, with mindfulness, with noticing when those negative, um, negative thoughts come and then, um, replacing them with something positive from, you know, your accomplishment list or from your, um, from your letters of recommendation. So, um, the, I hear that meditation helps a lot with that. I don't make time for that. Um, unfortunately as much as I would like to, but that's, you know, that's one way I think one thing that people have tried successfully, um, just to kind of catch those thoughts and then replace them with something more positive. Right. 
any of that. And we are all works in progress, right? I mean, I think I've definitely evolved as far as, you know, every decade, I definitely feel better about myself. Um, For sure, I've evolved immensely from my 20s and 30s. I'm gonna put it out there now. I'm in my 40s. And it's like, I feel like I finally come into my own, which is a nice feeling. Yeah, Yeah. that is. So there is for any of my um, listeners that are still in those 20s and 30s, I think you start to come to a place in space where you're finally accepting and loving of yourself, which is awesome. As we uh, as we bring this episode to a close, I'd love to invite anyone inside or outside of higher ed to share your experiences with us. I wondered if this is a phenomenon distinct to the humanities. I have a sense it's not. And then are there people in other fields? Um, we talked a lot about how maybe the structure of higher education gives way to these feelings or kind of even makes them worse. But I wonder if this happens in other fields, right? But I would love to hear from you. Judith would love to hear from you as well. We're at PhD and Parenting Podcast at Gmail if you want to send us an email there. And you can also connect with us on Instagram. The Instagram handle, again, is PhD in Parenting. Um, and if you're still listening, if you've made it this far and you like what you're hearing, I'd also encourage you to uh, leave a review, subscribe, or share us with a friend. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>